0: We believe emotional well-being is intricately tied to spiritual connection. We know that there is hope for those of us who have experienced trauma, even profound trauma. And that's why we created the Universe Is Your Therapist podcast. We envision a world of healing and connection and teach you simple but powerful practices to help you come home to your highest self, to your truest identity. We believe you are a divine soul who's deeply loved and that the entire universe conspires for your good. You're valued beyond comprehension and we wanna help you realize that. You are not broken, you are loved and you can heal. Hi, my name is Dr. Amy Hoyt and together with my sister, Lena, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we will lead you on a journey of self-discovery and self-love. Okay, Welcome to today's podcast. Today we are talking about what trauma is, what the symptoms are, what the effects are, how we know if we have trauma, the different types of trauma, all things trauma.
1: Excellent. Yes, it is. I'm Lena Hoyt. And Amy and I both have experience in working with different populations that have experienced trauma. So to start off with, let's talk about what trauma is. And a most basic definition is to identify that trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event. These events can be actually life-threatening or they can be perceived to be life-threatening. They don't actually have to be life-threatening to leave the imprint of a trauma.
0: Okay, so give us an example of a perceived life-threatening.
1: So if you are five years old and your mom forgets to pick you up from kindergarten... If you were a little older, you would know that you weren't going to die because your mom didn't pick you up on time. But if you're five and your mom doesn't come when you thought your mom was going to come and you're worried that you're going to be left all alone, that can be a traumatic incident as well.
0: Excellent explanation. OK, so it depends on our basically our mental state at the time.
1: Yes, it depends on our brain development, our perception, our inherent resilience, those types of things can dictate whether or not something can be a trauma. One of the things that I've seen in my clients that have anxiety is that a lot more events can be interpreted as traumatic by an anxious brain,
0: because the anxious brain is always worried. So if you're predisposed to anxiety, you may interpret different events as traumatic. Right. But regardless... If it is interpreted as trauma, it is trauma.
1: Yes. And it's not your conscious brain that interprets it as trauma. It's your subconscious brain. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. We all are born with a part of our brain called the autonomic nervous system. And that part of our brain is basically essential to keeping us alive. That part of our brain is the part that manages the heart rate, the rate of our blinking, our sweat glands, that type of thing. And within that system, we have what's called a limbic system that is responsive to fight, flight, or freeze. When the limbic brain gets activated subconsciously, what happens is we go into one of those three defense modes, and we may not even be aware what's happening internally, but we may be in fight mode, and we may start to get really loud. And really abrasive and very defended and very offensive. So we may engage in behavior that is fighting because our subconscious brain, our autonomic nervous system,
0: sees this as something we have to defend ourselves from. Interesting. Okay. So if I am a regular person and I have a suspicion that I might have trauma that I haven't resolved, how do I know If it's trauma or not, and how do I know if I have it?
1: There are a lot of symptoms that are going to overlap with various DSM-5 diagnoses. The DSM-5 is what we use to bill insurance, and it's a coding system that allows us to identify diagnoses that are accepted across the world. And one of the things that happens with trauma is that it may trigger the expression of some anxiety or depression. So some of the symptoms that we have for trauma are going to also be mimicked by other disorders. It doesn't necessarily mean if you have those symptoms that you have the disorder. And if you have these symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have PTSD. What you and I are talking about is the type of trauma that occurs that is not instantly identifiable as traumatic this type of trauma exists in relationship most frequently. So while there are very many types of trauma, including medical, birth trauma, single event trauma, ongoing trauma, sexual, physical, war or battle trauma, there are collective traumas and ancestral traumas. Those are just some of the traumas that are in existence. And the relational trauma is actually the most common trauma because our whole life we live in relation to other people. In our childhood, if we have a parent who was sick, perhaps you had a mother who was diagnosed with leukemia when you were six years old. And so that parent is actually not physiologically able to be present for you because they are battling their own illness. What can happen is that your subconscious brain starts to see the world as a place where people can't be trusted, can't be relied on, or people leave. And when that happens, that's the relational trauma that we're discussing that then shows up in our relationships across our lifespan. Again, this isn't something that we consciously think, my mom had leukemia when I was six, so now I don't trust people. It's much more subtle than that.
0: So a lot of people may have trauma and symptoms of trauma and not necessarily be aware that their symptoms are from trauma. Absolutely. So what are some symptoms of trauma?
1: Some of the symptoms of trauma are disrupted regulation. What does Um, that mean? You and I have been talking a little bit about emotion regulation and emotion regulation is about being able to think and feel at the same time instead of being flooded with feeling and either going it up into hyperarousal, where we go combative or big or reactive, or going into hypoarousal, where we get smaller or numbed out or shut down. And emotion regulation can be difficult when we've had traumatic experiences, because it's harder for us to see the world as a safe place. Therefore, when something happens that may be pretty benign in the broader scope of things, if it reminds us in any way subconsciously of our trauma, then we are
0: going to be put back into that nervous system state that occurred in the trauma. Okay. And so then you're seeing what you call dysregulation, where you're not able to think and feel at the same time. Right. So what does dysregulation look like? Dysregulation can look like me walking away from a conversation because the popular
1: phrase now is I'm done. And that means that I'm going to stonewall. I'm going to take control of the conversation by ending the conversation by removing myself. It can also look like I start arguing with you. It can look like I have big reactions to events, and those big reactions are either outsized according to typical responses, or they are so heavily laden or fraught with emotion that they become problematic, even possibly more problematic than the event that triggered them.
0: And what about hypo arousal where you're below your window of tolerance?
1: The window of tolerance is a really helpful reference and what that is is it's two vertical lines within those two horizontal lines we have some space where we can think and feel at the same time sometimes we'll be toward the upper regions and one more thing will put us into hyperarousal and sometimes we will be more towards the lower regions and one more thing can put us into hypoarousal where we numb out Sometimes people will talk about how they just don't want to talk to anybody for several days, or they need to go into their room and be by themselves for a few hours. Hypoarousal is a way of the body's autonomic nervous system attempt to protect us from too much, too much information, too much emotion. It's a state of overwhelm that we then slow down and shut down so that we don't have to be triggered consistently.
0: And will we generally have the same reactions to trauma? Will I always have a hyper arousal or always a hypo arousal? Talk about how the same person may have different reactions to different events.
1: One example might be the way you and I grew up. And so I'm the oldest and I grew up subconsciously trying to please everybody and make sure everything was very even, and everybody did what they were supposed to, so there wouldn't be any yelling. And when you came along, you have such a great way of seeing and speaking truth, and that is very inconvenient in a family that has very rigid expectations of behavior or belief system. And so what I remember from growing up is that you would tend to go more into fight mode, which doesn't necessarily mean you're punching anyone. And I would tend to go into flight or hypo arousal where I would try to become small and make sure that nothing horrible
0: was going to happen as a result of my behavior. That makes sense that the same event can provoke different responses in different people. What about the same person? Could I have a trigger where at one point I'm in hyperarousal and I'm exploding, but at a different point... Maybe with a different trigger, maybe the same trigger, I go into hypo where I'm shutting down. That does happen. We tend to have
1: a style of responding and we tend to have one particular general response that we tend to trend for toward, but we actually can have various responses depending on what happens. A lot of times people who have learned to manage other people, to please other people, to make sure that things are even and safe and calm at home, many times those people will come into hyper arousal, but it's after time, after time, after time, after time of them letting something go. Letting things slide, not speaking up, not stating what they would prefer. And then it's almost as if the body has to get mad enough to speak the boundary. And so that can be a hyper arousal when typically that person may oftentimes be more in hypo arousal.
0: What are some other symptoms of trauma?
1: There are lots of symptoms, including flashbacks. Some of the other symptoms that can occur are nightmares. We can also have somatic complaints. One of the trainings that you and I listened to was talking about a gentleman who had a horrific back pain for 30 years. And when the therapist started to explore that with him, it was discovered that in a moment of crisis where there was a piece of violence or a type of violence coming his way, The gentleman had twisted his back as he fell. And when the therapist started doing some work around that, the back pain was relieved. So we have these somatic symptoms that can come up as part of trauma where we can become more easily pained. We can have headaches, we can have stomach aches. A lot of people believe that IBS can be one of the things that shows up, not for all people who door trauma, but it can be a symptom for trauma. When you say somatic,
0: what do you mean for those people who aren't familiar with the
1: jargon? Thank you. When I'm talking about somatic, I'm talking about evidence in the body
0: of things that are happening emotionally or in the mind. So emotions being trapped in the body essentially, and then causing discomfort or pain.
1: Absolutely. One of the other things that happens a lot is that we can have the symptom of difficulty seeing ourselves as worthy or of value and while a lot of people talk about self-esteem that seems so nebulous to me and so when i'm working with clients or staff i talk much more about a sense of value and a sense of worth being able to identify that we are complicated whole people and that while we may have some flaws and weaknesses there are also things that we are good at, things that we excel at, or things that other people admire us for.
0: So it's getting out of that fixed mindset, that binary mindset. I'm either a good person or a bad person. I either have zero worth or all the worth in the world, and I'm worth more than everyone else. So it's that sweet, soft middle ground of flexibility or beginner's mind. Yes, But
1: in cognitive behavior therapy, which is a a very common therapeutic approach for trauma, we call it all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking. And being able to see things on a scale that allows for all the shades in between the black and the white, that is what we're aiming for when we become more emotionally regulated. We're looking for flexible thinking So that when things occur that are not what we had in mind, we are able to still proceed and address what's happening from a place of confidence, a place of competence, where we can take care of something that's occurring that we don't like without either having to
0: numb out or explode. We've talked about what trauma is. We've talked about symptoms of trauma. A couple of them that come to mind that I personally struggle with, I get lost very easily. I have a very hard sense of direction and in The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Yes, Bessel van der Kolk. Thank you. He talks about a lack of direction and a lack of sense of direction as part of the mind-body split when you have trauma where you have to separate from your body. And as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, that is definitely what my experience was when I was younger, where I had to separate from the body in order to emotionally survive. And as an adult, I have a very difficult time not getting lost. The other symptom that, that really resonates with me when I read about trauma is large gaps in memory. I have very few childhood memories. It's super frustrating for my children because they'll say, what about this or what about that? And I have large gaps. I cannot recall much of my childhood. And then there's another symptom that I know is somewhat controversial, but some people are linking autoimmune disorder to possible trauma. And I don't know the body of research well enough on that to speak effectively about that. But I know we're going to have Dr. Gina Hoyt on the podcast as a regular coming up, and she can talk to the research on that. What are some other symptoms? I just, I guess what I want to do is allow listeners who are wondering do I actually have unresolved trauma and do I have symptoms? Because so many of my symptoms, until I started researching trauma, I had zero idea that they were linked and that they all were a result of childhood trauma. And it was really devastating, actually, to find out that the majority of what I would consider my character flaws result from really coping mechanisms of trauma.
1: And perhaps that's a great place to insert the idea that instead of being discouraging, one way that we can look at it is as if our character flaws or defects, some of those which are Created through traumatic events or difficulties. That can be a relief if we can look at it more flexibly to understand that we present in the world in a certain way that we may find troubling when we're calm and know that we are not doing it on purpose. Nobody wrecks their relationship on purpose. Nobody tries to explode and lose their job on purpose that much of what we end up with in terms of how we cope with the world is an autonomic defense, which means it comes out of the brain without any conscious thought. And as far as symptoms go, there are so many. The memory is one. The detachment of body and mind is one. The nightmares are some. A lot of hypercriticism and self-criticism comes out of trauma, a lot of relational trauma.
0: The inner critic, imposter syndrome, feeling despite your achievements, you're a fraud and that people will find you out.
1: A lot of times how I explain it to my younger clients when I'm treating um, anxiety is I explain that when you have a brain that is constantly looking for danger or mistakes, then any of the things that occur that are gifts or blessings or strengths or awesomeness about you, gets very little weight. And what will happen is the brain will hyperfocus on the things that weren't perfect or weren't right or weren't good enough, and what that leads to is an imbalance in seeing ourselves as complicated people that exist on a continuum. And so we are very limited in our ability to acknowledge our strengths. We don't actually don't even see them many times. Because the inner critic gets involved and does not allow us to focus on the neutral or positive or strength things that we have.
0: I think what I want to do is push back a little bit on the self acceptance, whereas I think that's super important after you allow yourself the time to grieve. The grief that I felt about constantly being lost in my own hometown is really profound. And I think if I hadn't allowed myself to grieve that and instead jumped right into appreciating it, um, that would be not as helpful for me to sit in those feelings of grief and accept that this is who I am and that I always have to have a map and usually sometimes more than one. And that I always second guess even the directions I've mapped out because it's so common for me to lose my sense of direction and it's so destabilizing and so for me the grief was really important to sit with temporarily. I'm still not sure what the lesson is and how I can appreciate being lost all the time. (laughs) So if anyone if any listeners have an idea of why that's amazing please email me because I would like to feel good about being lost a lot.
1: Well, and let me clarify, I appreciate that you brought that up because we don't do well when we try to stuff, go over, around, or under our emotional response. What we need to be able to do is experience it. And what I wanted to clarify was that the relief that I'm referencing is I'm not doing this to myself. I'm not purposely making myself lost. I'm not purposely making life harder for myself. I'm not purposely sabotaging my life. Self-sabotage is really common in our vernacular. And I think it's really problematic because it doesn't take into account the things that happen autonomically in our nervous system, which is subconsciously, and it's always in response to threat. And so in my opinion, self-sabotage is not about trying to make your life a mess. It's about... These old maladaptive coping mechanisms that come in and get in the way of your forward movement and your progress.
0: So one of the symptoms of unresolved trauma could simply be repeated patterns that are truly not serving you. Correct. But you cannot figure out why you keep repeating the patterns.
1: And you are
0: so puzzled. Why do I keep ending
1: up with the same type of partner romantically? Why do I keep ending up in the same dynamic at work? That type of thing. And what I have seen is that trauma is much more responsible for those repetitive patterns than any conscious desire to make your life a wreck. That makes so
0: much sense. What are some things for our listeners as we're wrapping up this episode they can do at home On their own to start this process of self exploration about trauma, or if they know for sure they have trauma they would like to heal from. I know there are so many things we can do on our own if we're simply taught the skill. Right.
1: Let me make a caveat here because one thing that the brain really dislikes is change. And so, what we will be talking about throughout the podcast and the other work that we'll be doing regarding trauma is we'll be making suggestions or talking about ideas for interventions for us to do ourselves that will help us. What is really imperative to keep in mind is that as soon as you say to your brain, I need to do this, your brain puts up resistance. As soon as I say to my brain, I need to exercise 30 minutes every day. Subconsciously, my brain goes into this place where it's like, Mm-mm you can't make me, I don't have to do nothing, you say it to me. We have to be aware that when we receive these suggestions or these ideas or the interventions, that we want to put them into place in the smallest micro step that we can so that we're working with the brain's resistance and we're not saying that everything has to be done a certain way perfectly I have to get this intervention or this assignment or this suggestion done. If I want my life to be better, we also need to be really careful that we're not saying to ourselves, clearly I don't want my life to be better because I haven't done this intervention yet.
0: Okay. So what we really need, I'm thinking of a training that we watched where the doctor was talking about working at the edges of our windows of tolerance Mm -hmm. to where we are, not quite at hypo or hyper arousal. We're not quite dysregulated, but we can feel almost, for me, it feels like agitation. And at that edge is where you're introducing a micro step. Is that correct? What you're saying? It can be. When we're at that edge, we want to be able to observe it without
1: judgment. And so if I can notice that I'm at agitation and just do some breathing just to think about how given the circumstances, it might make sense that my response is too big or not big enough. If I can remember that I have automatic responses that come out of my nervous system, it's really important that we recognize that our desire to get better happens when we are fully connected with our prefrontal cortex, our wise mind our logical mind. And that anytime we have agitation, we go backwards into our brain. And we are now inhabiting more of the limbic brain or the reptilian brain. And so we want to know that resistance is part of this, that hesitation and avoidance is part of this.
0: So what's one skill we can send listeners away with today to work on that's a very small step that is not going to lead to great resistance. That's what you would say a micro step. I like learning how to be the observer
1: without judgment. It's very difficult, especially when you have a strong inner critic, but being able to be the observer without judgment is just noticing what happens, what you do, what you say, what you don't do, what you don't say. Notice that when you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and do this exercise. Notice if there's resistance and you want to be distracted and go get another glass of Coke or whatever. If we can observe without judgment, we become more aware of some of the things that are occurring for us. And when we become more aware without judgment, we can
0: learn more about ourselves and what's happening. So I have heard that advice quite a bit in my life. Observe without judgment. I'm not sure how to actualize it sometimes.
1: What, I have found in my own journey and what I'm still working on is notice when I'm upset or agitated or having an emotional response. And then instead of saying to myself, I shouldn't have that response or it's not that big of a deal or why am I so upset? I say, oh, I'm noticing that I'm having a strong response to the grocery clerk giving me back the incorrect change. I notice what's happening for me. That then gives me some conscious ability to make a choice about what I do next.
0: So one of the steps that has been really helpful for me, because most times I don't have mental space between the self-criticism and the event to even notice. And so for me, I found one of the tools that has been most helpful is Gabby Bernstein's tool. It's in her book, The Judgment Detox. And she talks about when we have a negative thought or a thought that is not helpful, that we immediately can say, I forgive this thought and I forgive myself and I choose again. And I have used that over and over and over as a thought disruptor. So literally saying, I forgive the thought, I forgive myself, I choose again. And sometimes I have to do it 20, 30 times in a row. When I've been activated and I'm feeling really upset about something or someone, and I want to change my thought about it or even just step back from the event and be the observer, that's been a trick that has really, really helped.
1: Well, one of the reasons it's so powerful is because you are acting as the observer. If you notice a thought and then say to yourself, I forgive my- this thought, I forgive myself, and I choose differently, then you are observing what's happening in your brain. And then you are consciously giving yourself permission to make a different choice. But you're forgiving yourself in the meantime, so you can calm your brain down.
0: That is really helpful. So one of the things that we want to do for this podcast is we always want to talk about our spiritual connection to emotional healing. And I know that I use the term God in my own spiritual practice. Some people use the term the universe, the creator, the divine. As a professor of religion, I'm aware that there are so many different names for the divine and even for different forms of the divine, whether it's goddess or whether it's multiple gods as in some of the other Eastern traditions. What I want to connect for our listeners is why does spirituality matter with emotional healing
1: spirituality i think matters with emotional healing because it is part of the healing process to be able to bring back together the spiritual the body and the mind and spiritual practices are centuries and millennia old, and they're designed to help us tap into something that's greater than ourselves, higher than ourselves. That power that's greater than ourselves or a higher power can do things that we cannot do. Whether you believe in a higher power in a specific name or in a specific religion, that type of thing, the fact that there is a higher power, there's a power greater than ourselves, is what
0: allows healing. And so can an atheist heal? Absolutely. So it's not simply you have to be spiritual in order to heal. Absolutely not. So then there are other mechanisms to heal besides through the spiritual. Sure. I feel like there was always a gap for me from healing from trauma until I integrated the spiritual and that that helped close that gap. I was able to heal quite a bit through traditional means such as therapy and group therapy. I went to 12-step meetings, I'm trying to think of all the things I've done because there's been so, so many. Medication. Gosh, I mean, I've, I've literally tried everything I know how to try, and it really did get me quite far. For me, I wasn't able to completely heal until I allowed my own relationship with God, the Creator, the Divine, to really come as a central focus. and it was through connecting through these different modalities, like breath work and meditation. And mind you, I've prayed basically my whole life. so i'm I'm not speaking about a traditional prayer where it's more of the mind involved. I'm talking about a practice that is spiritual where the body is involved. And so meditation has been really impactful for me because of the breathing breath work, where you're breathing in patterns, and you're really tapping into some of the subconscious identity markers. One of the things you and I have talked about previously is this idea that our bodies are a gift, and I believe they're a gift from a divine creator, and that we only have them for a limited time during this earthly mortal realm. And you can find that belief in other traditions besides Christianity. And so this idea that the body is temporary, that our soul has inhabited this body to learn lessons is not unique to one tradition can be found in different belief systems. But I definitely subscribe to that, that this is a temporary state that we're living in with the gift of a body and that that gift is a divine gift and that the soul Or the spirit that is within our body will continue on and it continued beforehand. We are the same soul or spirit that we had before we came into inhabit this body, and we will have the same soul and spirit when we leave this body. But that existence as we know it is very temporary, and that existence, past and future, is infinite. And that the work we're doing in the body will directly benefit our soul and our spiritual imprint. And since I do believe that, and I know that you don't have to believe that to tap into these different practices that are very healing and can be spiritually Healing. I believe that even when I was attending twelve-step meetings regularly, and the first step being, you know, that I believe that there was a power greater than myself, that was so profound to give up this pain and this addiction to a power greater than any human. And I think even if you are a non-believer or an atheist. Thinking of the 12 steps and just saying there is a power, whatever it is you choose is greater than the human power. And I think that is just a relief to give that away and to let some of our brokenness be healed by a power beyond us. Something that we can't do on our own. Exactly. We literally
1: cannot do. May I share a little bit about my observations about your journey? Sure. I was thinking about the question of, of course, an atheist can also heal from trauma. That's absolutely true. What I've observed in your journey in the last few months in particular is that what you've done is you've awoken the divine within you. And that's where I think we're missing so much that we are more than these cells and this flesh and these bones. And I've seen you heal and exponentially heal as you've learned how to tap into that
0: amazing source within. Yeah. And I do believe the source within is a piece of the divine, that we're all part of God and that we're all one. And that literally whatever happens in one space, there is an action that is exactly the same through space and time. And so everything is connected. It is absolutely true. I believe that we all have a piece of the divine within us. I believe that has been my scariest part of the healing is allowing the spiritual within me to take over. And I don't know why I was so resistant for so long, but it takes for me, it took practice in recognizing it and practice in letting it come out and letting it be okay with whatever it was. I think that, all of the distractions and all of the focus in this world are about shiny things. And of course, money, which we need money and money can be used for good. It's a tool, but the focus of this world tends to be on the physical body, which again is a gift, but sometimes at the detriment of the spiritual. And when I am allowing myself to live in my highest self with my wisest mind, I am allowing my spiritual self to take the lead. And my physical body is resistant sometimes because I want what I want what I want. And of course, we're dealing with the brain, which has patterns and really deep neuropathways that get laid down very young and then that gets repeated over and over. And so for me, claiming that power has been scary. But now that I'm working on it and I'm claiming it, I feel like I remember who I am, finally. And it's delightful. I can tell in how you show up on a daily basis.
1: I can tell in how you show up in your relationships. I think it's so lovely that because of the work that you've been doing, you've found the missing piece in how we've been treating trauma for decades. And while trauma hasn't been easily recognized for decades, it certainly has existed since time immemorial. And the ability to turn something over and the ability to see that there is some force that can be used for good, including our own good, it helps us to rise above the acquisition mindset. And while we are very body conscious, particularly in the West and particularly in the United States. Our body is so much more. It's so much more than how it looks. One of the things that I remember reading over the years is women who have healed from body shame and the joy that they found in the many things that their bodies can do. And to me, that is rising above the temporary mindset And it's striving for something deeper and more meaningful.
0: Absolutely. I'm aware of the powerful work of Lexi Kite and her twin sister. And they started a movement, More Than a Body, and You Are Not Your Body. And I believe their book is called More Than a Body. They both have PhDs from the University of Utah and have really taken on this idea that the body is the wrong focus solely. That, yes, we want to be healthy so that our body can function to do what our spirit is desiring. So if I want to go serve others, I have to be able to get out of bed. And that means I have to eat a certain way so that my gluten intolerance isn't getting in the way and I have to stay close to home that day. So there's, there's definitely a conversation about fueling our body with health, but not simply for aesthetics and possibly not even for aesthetics, depending on who you are. But that it's really about the internal, the spiritual piece, being able to guide the body and having the body healthy enough to take direction.
1: A lot of people who have been in treatment for trauma have experience with dialectic behavioral therapy. And that comes out of the University of Washington with Marsha Linehan. And one of her big concepts is that we have a wise mind. And the wise mind is residing in our prefrontal cortex. And in order for us to access that part of our mind, it's essential for us to learn how to calm our physiology. Because if our physiology isn't calm, then our brain is now in the autonomic nervous system. And it's hard to access the wise mind.
0: And what we're saying is, yes, there is a wise mind, and perhaps it's being led by the spirit. And the soul is what is really our highest identity, our highest, truest self. And that's what we want to get used to is getting quiet enough to hear what the wise mind or if you're a spiritual person what the soul and spirit is asking of you because you will be led and you're led by your own internal guidance system which is completely intact it's just so covered buried buried by shame and experience and you name it noise and so what we want to do is help you clear that and help you understand that that is just as valid as your thinking mind, that your spirit and your soul are not only just as valid, but they will often lead you to your highest good when we're paying attention. And so that's, I think, what we really want to drive home in this podcast. So thank you so much for all things trauma today and we will see you all back here in a couple days.
1: Yes, I'm excited. We're going to be talking more about some of the symptoms, more about how trauma affects us, more about how it affects our sense of ourselves and the
0: world. It's going to be really exciting. Every week we give away fun swag. And if you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple podcast or go on your Instagram stories and talk about the episode and tag us at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. It really means so much to us that you take the time to listen and engage with us and we love you all and know that together we can build a beautiful world. There's so many good episodes coming up so definitely subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and go ahead and leave us a review because it is free and it only takes a minute and it would really mean so much to us. Finally, if you're inspired by this episode and you think of someone who would love it or learn from it, feel free to send them the link or post about it on Instagram and tag us and we'll repost a few. Again, that's at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. We love you. We'll be back in a few days. Keep healing.